Welcome to the That Don't Fit podcast, a podcast where we're dedicated to talking about life and life's real issues that cross racial and generational lines. My name is Jared Torrance, and I'm here with my co-host, Andy Farmer. We're friends, we're pastors, we're wanting to help people talk and process life in a crazy world. Welcome to the conversation. I think I know the word you're trying to Anti- say, and I would never try to say it. Guys, I've said this word so many times today. <laughs> Misogynist? No, miscegenation. Oh. Okay, Anti-miscegenation yeah. statute. Okay. Yeah. Oh, can I start that sentence over? Yes, go work? right ahead. I hope none of and us then, And then pay Grant to get it out of there. <laughs> Absolutely, whatever you'd like. Um, it's great to be back. This is a great, great topic. We're, we're in the middle of talking about uh, history, historical issues, and um, very excited because tonight yes. we have our first guest interview. A historic moment. It's a historic moment. <laughs> when we build our Hall of Fame, this person will be at the very front of it. And, uh, and just grateful to have Cassie Justy. And she's a friend. She's a, a member of our church. The reason we wanted to have her in here, besides what you will uh, see in a bit, is just she's a, she's a woman who thinks really well about mm-hmm. the things that we're talking about and is very thoughtful and I think brings some insights. And so we've asked her to kind of come prepared to talk about laws, talk about uh, uh, laws that affect our understanding of race and certainly historically. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the focus here. We're probably going to be multiple episodes out of this. So um, before I go any farther, I just want to give a chance for Cassie to introduce herself and uh, tell us a little bit about you. And, uh, and we'll jump in. Sure. Um, well, like you said, my name is Cassie Justy. I am a member of Covenant Fellowship. I've been going to Covenant for probably about seven years now. Um, I'm a mom to an eight-year-old boy. I'm slightly biased, but he's pretty awesome. Um, and then my day job, I am a regulatory attorney. So I work in finance and investment management normally. Um, and then for my kind of pro bono portfolio of work, it's um, almost entirely in the immigration space. Okay, well, 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 okay, we'll have to have you back for that as yeah. well. Yes. <laughs> That's a whole thing. Maybe you're just going to take over the show. Um, no, it's great to have you. And, and, and what we talked about, when we talked about doing this, we talked about you just kind of walking us through sort of a history of key legislative moments in, in our country's history that affected race. Um, things that maybe there are terms that we'll be familiar with, but don't know what they mean, uh, or don't know the impact of them over time. And so uh, we're excited. We're going to kind of go chronologically. Cassie's prepared to actually talk about uh, even going back into colonial days, but we're going to do a, a couple of sessions on um, on slavery at another time. And so I asked her, let's start after that and kind of kind of look in the period after the founding and and just kind of start there. And so let me let me open with this question: As you think about sort of that period, early American history, what are some laws? What are some uh, some events? Uh, in, in our legal history that are good for us to be aware of. Yeah. So I think it's helpful to think about, you know, when we think about the founding of our country or we think mm-hmm. about, when I kind of think of, you know, where did American history start? I think of, you know, coloring my little Mayflower boat in whatever <laughs> grade it was going to Catholic school. So if we kind of start, you know, 
when that happened, 1620, slaves were actually brought to the United States, I think a year prior to about yeah. 20 or so slaves were brought here. So the kind of embedding racial inequality into our legal system has been a thing since before the foundation of America as we know it today. So if we kind of pick up with the first kind of recorded racial inequality embedded right there on the face of the law, we're talking about 1661, right? So we're talking way back. Um, The first anti-miscegenation law was put into place in Maryland. So those are laws that prohibit interracial marriage. Mm -hmm. So that went into place in Maryland. It prohibited free English women from marrying a black man, all of which were were slaves at the time. If she chose to do so, she would become a slave and any of her children would become slaves as well. So laws like that remained on the books of first the 13 colonies and then the states as we know them, often actually ingrained in their constitution. So if you think about like, you know, states have a constitution, they have laws, they have regular statutes that they put in place, they have local regulation, things that typically go into a constitution is like, this is who we are as a state. So most of the states had these anti-miscegenation laws built right into their constitution, right? So this is not supposed to be changed, it's not easily amended. And those stayed on the books until about 54 years ago mm-hmm. when the Supreme Court decided um, Loving versus Virginia. Yeah. So I think that's one of the first instances we have of just pretty blatant racism mm-hmm. right on the face yeah. of a law. Mm-hmm. And that continues on for pretty much all of our nation's history. Mm-hmm. So if you want to fast forward to the Declaration of Independence... I'm, I just sang Hamilton in my head. Um, <laughs> so there are, you know, there's language in the Declaration of Independence that says, you know, all men are created equal. Mm. We know that did not apply to African Americans. It did not apply mm. to Africans. It did not apply to slaves. Okay. Or so, women, really. I'm sorry? Or women, really. Or women, right. really. That's right. <laughs> so by the time that the Constitutional Convention rolls around in 1787, there were already several states that had, several northern states that had abolished slavery. So there were Southern politicians that were worried about slave fugitives essentially running away to mm-hmm. Northern free states. So mm-hmm. when the Constitutional Convention rolled around, they made sure that the fugitive slave clause was actually built into the Constitution. So that essentially tells the world, if you are a slave and you run, you escape to a free state, you are still in bondage, you are still a slave, your status has not changed, despite the fact that you no longer live Mm-hmm. wherever you came from on the plantation that you likely escaped from. Yeah. Which is just quick, it's interesting because states like Pennsylvania, their, their abolition laws uh, freed slaves who came into the states after a certain period of time. And so it seems like you have this, the, the national law saying this, state law saying this, which one is going to win out. Right. You know, and uh, I think a lot of times the state law won out because the national law didn't have any enforcement by it. They didn't have anybody to enforce it. And so states, so, so, so people came to Pennsylvania because yeah. of its law. So it's interesting that you have, a, you know, you have a case where the, the, uh, the, the constitution and state law are drastically different and they haven't had, had a uh, Supreme court yet to even rule on that issue. Right. So, but that tension that you mentioned, Andy kind of shows up in like almost like a battle of the legislation, right? So yeah. we amend the constitution, we add the fugitive slave clause. Mm-hmm. 
Then you have states that are enacting their laws to say, no, if, you win, if you're in Pennsylvania, you would be considered to be free. Yeah. Then you go back to federal law. In 1793, they enacted the first Fugitive Slave Act mm -hmm. that actually authorizes local governments to pursue and seize and return <sighs> slaves yeah. to their owners. Yeah. Right. So you have northern states saying, nope, they're okay here, and the federal government saying, no, they're actually not. Mm -hmm. um, so that imposed penalties on anyone that escaped and anyone who helped yeah. a former slave escape. Yeah. Um, I think the penalty was like $500 or something. It's a lot of money. I was going to say it's a lot of money now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly a lot of money though. So then if we fast forward a few years, you had an act passed that prohibited the importation of slaves. So it essentially said you cannot import a slave through any port in the United States if it is from a foreign country. Yeah. So it limits the slave trade across the international slave trade it, right yeah. the international slave trade but mm -hmm. it was still perfectly permissible to sell and buy slaves mm -hmm. within the united states mm -hmm. um and then of course children that are born into slavery just it provides like a self-sustaining yeah, yeah population of slaves for for folks in the south mm -hmm. so if we you know fast forward maybe 40 or so years they passed a second Fugitive one thing just act. to throw in there um in 1820 the the missouri compromise is it's interesting part of that because the uh, it was basically it was supposedly a uh, a, a compromise because it, to bring Maine in as a free state and Missouri in as a slave state, supposedly to limit the amount of Western expansion of slavery, but the reality and the reason it was it was actually a, a created that way was because the concern was the North would because slaves were counted in in. Um, in the census. count for representatives, they wanted to limit the uh, in the senators to two per state. And if they ended up with more states this way, they would end up with the South having. So it was in a sense of political with, with slavery as a secondary issue, which seems like that's a lot of the way things get passed. There's mm -hmm. there's bigger political agendas. Sure. And the race aspect is, is a minor part of it or not a big part. So if you fast forward a few years to 1850, they passed a second slave, Fugitive Slave Act. And that essentially added more provisions prohibiting anyone from kind of harboring slaves or helping with the escape of a slave. It also determined that any fugitive slave that fled from their owner couldn't testify at their own trial. They couldn't have a jury trial. And it imposed harsh penalties for any federal marshals that refused to enforce mm -hmm. the Fugitive Slave Act. So essentially, if they would refuse to to go pursue a slave and to capture a slave that was yeah. that had deemed themselves to be free. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So stopping there, just a big picture. What do you feel like? What was all that doing ultimately? I mean, you're you're now probably five years <clears throat> from the Civil War. What was going on? Um as these things are being passed like they are. Think about the Dred Scott case, too, where basically uh, African-Americans can't be citizens. Um, right. So that's not a, you know, that's a pretty big one, too. So there's this whole... But at the same time, we talk about, well, there's, there's, a, there's a North and a South, and there's, there's you know, pro-abolitionists. -abol and, and so it seemed like the laws a lot of times kept moving in the direction of making it worse for, for, for blacks. And any idea why that would be? Well, I think the tension that you mentioned earlier, Andy, um, with, you know, the North wanting to go in one direction and the South wanting to go in a different direction, I think created like a volleyball match mm. that continues mm. on for several years, even post 
the abolition of slavery, yeah. which we'll see through kind of the reconstruction era and Jim Crow. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's this kind of volleyball match battle going on like a tug of war mm-hmm. where one person's trying to make progress towards equality. And then you have the South pulling yeah. in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah. I think that, that seems to feel like, uh, and the compromises a lot of times are having to come to preserve the union. Right. Because it feels like whenever these come up, there's an issue of, well, we'll just leave. You know, and uh, and the South tendency to sort of use secession. I, I know they used it back in uh, 1787 as a uh, as a reason to kind of force the North to to agree to these compromises. But uh, so that's a... So you feel like that behind this is just a lot of yeah we're, we we have leverage because we don't need the north necessarily is what we think like the north needs us or yeah. yeah I think that's that's likely it I and as I look at I mean going through the exercise of like looking at all these laws is such a yeah. disheartening exercise in many respects mm-hmm. um but at the same time it really affirms what we see in scripture yeah. like we we understand that the heart of man is sinful. Mm-hmm. We and we see that play out in different ways, and we understand that people are willing to do things, are willing to do pretty heinous things for the sake of preserving their own interest, yeah. um, or for the sake of greed, pride, whatever. Fill in the blank. The economy. The economy. Right. right. Yeah. It's a disheartening exercise in many respects, but it just affirms the truth that we know, which is yeah. that our hope is not in man. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Any feel for like during that period? I don't know if you had a chance to read on this at all because I haven't. But like the presidents and sort of the presidential leadership in this, as these things are going on, you know. I mean, I'm thinking, can we name presidents? I'm not sure. You know? There's <laughs> 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 a guy named Jackson, and you know. But uh, so. I wonder, because, you know, we think about these laws being passed. There's a president who's doing things, and there's Congress. And yep. and uh, so you looked into them a little bit. Do you think that, uh, what's your feeling on kind of, how did they actually get passed? Like, who would bring them up? Who would, how would a debate go? And I'm not saying you can drop into the actuals, but just your feeling of how this kind of, these things became law. Yeah. Well, I think it's, if we think about when we use, we often throw out the term law without kind of breaking down what we mean by that, right? Yeah. So there's constitutional law, which okay. is like, this is the, what's on the face of the constitution and how we interpret the constitution. Then we have federal law. So this is statutes that Congress is passing. Yeah. So much of what we just talked about in that volleyball match is states making certain laws and then the federal government coming and saying something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's federal law, there's specific state laws, which we just talked about. Um, and then there are local laws. And then as time went on, you know, we had federal agencies that were created and they made federal regulation, which also plays a large part in, um, in racial inequality as you think about like housing and mortgage and banking discrimination. So that doesn't need to go through Congress. That just exists because, so who's driving that? that So that would be, that would be whatever federal agency is kind of sitting in the driver's seat. So we have you know, securities regulation, they have federal agencies and they have their own process to create regulation mm-hmm. and have it come to pass. And they don't need Congress mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah. Right. Great. So we're up to where we're, uh, like 1850. Mm-hmm. Yep. Second Fugitive Slave Law. Second Fugitive Slave Act. Yeah. Um, so they think about other 
other significant laws that impacted um, that impacted equality or the lack thereof in mm-hmm. the United States. Um, and it's probably worth taking a step back and thinking about like the laws that were in the country during this period were not just focused on African Americans or former slaves or current slaves, right? So there were laws against the Chinese. Mm-hmm. There were laws against um, a, a slew of demographics. Um, Native Americans. Native Americans. So mm-hmm. the thought that just came to mind was just the Homestead Act yeah. that actually gave Native American land to folks who wanted to come and settle in the West for the for the sake of expansion. Mm-hmm. And this is after we've already pushed them out right. of the land that yeah. they started in. We gave them that land and then took it back again. And we said, yeah. just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's more than just kind of the black-white construct that yeah. we often think about. Um, and who was impacted by the racial inequality that was embedded in our in our legal system? Yeah. And there's all kinds of laws that are coming into play with immigration from Europe too, where there you know where there's there's all kinds of labor laws that are coming into play to preserve jobs. And so it's interesting. It's it's a it's a country that is very diverse. You know, trying to manage its majorities and minorities and stuff and so right yeah. right um and there was a law although the name escapes me um but it essentially prohibited and if, i think if you just read the face of the law it seems like a positive thing but it prohibited chinese japanese oriental folks that were forced laborers from being allowed into the united states so that sounds like a very good thing we don't want forced laborers we don't mm-hmm. want you to bring people here against their will. Although we, we seem to apply that selectively. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole other story, but it also prohibited the immigration of Chinese women or Asian women that were classified as prostitutes. And the impact that that, that law had is just Chinese women were just not allowed to immigrate to the United States. So essentially all Asian women were deemed to be prostitutes Mm. because how do you, how do you verify whether someone coming here is a prostitute or not? So the, the laws that we have put into place, I think, have pretty broad-reaching impacts outside yeah. of just, just the black community and just the Native American mm-hmm. community. Mm-hmm. And, and just to note, like, <laughs> we're, we're not too many generations removed from what you're talking about. Like, this isn't like, this is not ancient history. Like, right. the interracial marriage law you just said just got reversed 54 years ago. Like. Right. That's not a long time. So the impact like of these things continues on throughout like today. Right. And so I, I think that's something we have to remember when we're having these conversations about race and ethnicity and, and the difficulties and different things and these hard conversations come about. We're, we're not too far removed from radical laws that drastically affected all of us. And so just wanted to throw that out there yeah. as well. Yeah. This concludes part one of a two-part episode on historical laws. Tune in next week for part two.